Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. Have you ever thought much about what is actually being said about someone when you say their name? Probably not often, right? Because for us, you know, in our modern American culture, names are typically just names. Sure, there are some names that correspond to actual English words that we use, like summer and violet and autumn. Mostly names that became popular when millennials like myself were given the authority to not only create people, but name them, right? But generally speaking, modern names are considered to be a completely separate class of words than the rest of our language. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't care to know what a person's name might mean, but we've got this thing called Google, and we just type it in, and we discover such things. You know, chances are you name your kids for reasons other than what that name might have meant in ancient Gaelic or Swahili or wherever else that combination of sounds became popular. We name people in our culture from tradition, from family heritage, from meaningful historical figures, literary folks, or maybe even, you know, from this thing called the Bible, right? You know, for for Lexi, my wife, and I, we just had this running list of names that we wrote down, names that we liked, and we started doing this right around the time we figured out that, you know, we liked each other enough to spend our lives together and bring other humans into this world. And some of those names on that list are from the Bible, but not necessarily because we think that the person that they represent was like a good representation of who, who humans should be. Mostly, it was just because we liked the way the name sounded. And so I could tell you that a lot of thought went into naming our son, whose name is Ezra Alexander. But honestly, the meaning of his name was, was pretty much a bonus. So for those if interested, Ezra means helper, and Alexander means defender of men. But mostly, we just thought that that name, Ezra Alexander, sounded strong. And Ezra was somewhat of a family name on her side, and so therefore, we settled on it. Now, if you don't know, we've got another son cooking in the womb, and we're going to name him Harper Leslie. Now, if you Google Harper, you will find out that it's a word, a name that simply means one who plays the harp. Pretty inventive, right? (laughs) We're not naming him Harper because we expect him to grow up and play the harp. Although, if he chooses to do that, that's great. It's like a good business name. We're naming him Harper because Harper was a name that was on our list. And to be completely honest with you, I'm naming him Harper, and I might have landed on this name, because 
you know, Philadelphia Phillies slugger Bryce Harper hit the home run that won the pennant. And I was like, man, that's a good name. So there you go. And of course, Leslie, if you were here last week, is the name of the greatest man that we've ever known. And so all of this is to say that the way that we typically, in our culture, name people is based a whole lot more on factors such as family history, tradition, and fame, rather than anything else. But this is not the way that it is in your Bible. In the Bible, people's names have real meanings based on the actual Hebrew and Greek words that they are. So take, for instance, Adam, the first name in the Bible. It's just the Hebrew word for human. The second name in the Bible, Eve, is just the Hebrew word for life. Abraham is two Hebrew words, father and nations, or father of nations. Isaac, their son's name is laughter. The name Israel literally means wrestles with or struggles with God, which, <laughs> true. And Ezra, as I've already said, means helper. So we can learn a lot about the characters, these people in our Bibles, just by understanding the meaning of the name given to them. Because these names describe a fundamental truth about them. In English, names are proper nouns. In Hebrew, names are like adjectives. And the same can be said about the many ways that God is named throughout the scriptures. God reveals himself to people using a variety of different names. And sometimes God goes by names that are given to him by those who call on him. And so today marks the beginning of a new series called My Name is Hope. We're also beginning the season of Advent, which is a season of expectant waiting for hope to arrive. We mark and celebrate the coming of hope into the world through the birth of the Christ child, the ultimate source of both our individual and collective hope. Now, I've said this probably a million times already, and I'll say it a million times more. But the Bible is a single story that leads to Jesus. And what that means is that I believe that every detail of our Bibles, in some way or another, informs us about the life, death, resurrection, and return of Christ, as well as leads us to more fully understand the attributes and the person of Jesus Christ. And so as we move through Advent together, each week we will look at a different name that God goes by in the Old Testament and see how they all lead us to the ultimate revelation of hope for humanity and for us. So if there's anything that this world is a bit short on these days, it's hope. And we are called to be people of hope, so let's just get this thing moving and see just how that hope is shown to us. So you may be familiar with a man from the Bible who goes by the name of Father Abraham. He's mostly famous for his song. You know his song? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. 
Yeah, you are, and so so are you. <laughs> so y'all know this song, right? So Father Abraham, he had many sons, but where we're going to find ourselves in the scriptures today is Father Abraham does not have many sons. He's only got one, and that son is a young boy named Ishmael, a child that he fathered with a woman who was, ding, 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 not his wife. It's a fiasco that we're actually going to look at more next week. And so right after Ishmael is born, God comes to him. And Abraham is now 99 years old, still holding on loosely to this promise that God had made to him many years before, that he and his wife Sarah would have children together, and that their descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. For Abraham and Sarah, and probably for those who are reading along through the book of Genesis, that's a promise that now seems well beyond the realm of reality. Because we have a basic knowledge of human biology and the aging process. And so we know that Sarah is well beyond her childbearing years. And Abraham and Sarah both know this. They're not dummies. And so they try to circumvent God's promise by taking matters into their own hands, and they end up really making a mess of things. You see, what the problem is is that they don't really believe that God can do what God has promised he will do. And God, being God, sees this and, and knows that this is happening inside of their hearts. He sees the, the action that they've taken and this, uh, the birth of this boy, Ishmael. And, and so God comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 and says this. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make a covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but you shall be, your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. For an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And so what we have is God coming and, and revealing who he is to Abraham. And I want to focus in right here on, on verse 1. But first I, I have to ask you a question. Are you guys ready to uh, just, like, do some Bible nerd stuff? Because I'm, I'm ready, so you're ready, I'm ready. Like, let's do some Bible nerd stuff together. So remember the context here is that Abraham and his wife have faltered in their faith a bit. They've stopped believing that God can give them a son together. And so God comes to Abraham, and he announces himself by saying, I am God Almighty. And the Hebrew words here are the words El and Shaddai. 
El Shaddai. El is short for Elohim, which is the Hebrew word that simply means spiritual being, but we translate that as God. And Shaddai is a word that no one really knew how to translate until recently. And so historically, the translation was Almighty, which came simply from context and a limited understanding of the word itself back when the scriptures were originally translated into Latin back in the Roman years. And the cool thing is, that's not a bad translation. And that's why we still use it in our English. But what scholarship, based on newer archaeology and a, a more broad and robust understanding of Hebrew's neighboring cognate languages, has taught us that Shaddai is best translated as cosmic mountain, which I'm going to argue right now is an expression of God being almighty and all-powerful. And so God comes to Abraham and he says, I am the God of the cosmic mountain. And to us, that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> but to a Middle Eastern man 4,000 years ago, it's an incredibly powerful statement. And that's because almost every single religion in that era, area believed that their most powerful deity dwelt on top of a cosmic mountain. For Babylon, it was their god Marduk. For Egypt, their god Ra. In Canaan, their god Baal. All were believed to be the god who dwelt on the cosmic mountain. And this continued on into Greek and Roman mythology. You've heard of Mount Olympus, right? And so this idea is big and it's deep. And so Abraham is this man who originally came from the land of Babylon, a man who lived in and traveled through both Egypt and Canaan. He's a man who is well-versed in the religions that surrounded him. And what you have to keep in mind is at this point in time, the religion of Israel is not some like organized situation. Abraham was just following the voice of this God who came to him and spoke directly to him. And so I can only imagine that in all of these years that he was measuring who this God that came and spoke to him was in relation to all of the other gods and stories that he heard about throughout his very, very long life. And so when God comes and says to Abraham, I am the God of the cosmic mountain. What he is proclaiming to Abraham is that I am, I'm the top dog here, right? He's not saying I am Marduk or I'm Ra or I'm Baal. What he's saying is that like you've heard about all these other fools, but let me tell you that I am the true God who reigns in all power and all might. I am the all-powerful one. I am the God of the cosmic mountain. And if you thought that this rabbit hole is already getting deep. We've got to take this thing just a few steps further because to ancients, particularly ancient Israelites who found their origin in the place where we find ours, in the Garden of Eden, what this language signals is that this God who was speaking to Abraham is the God of creation, the God who dwelled in 
Eden. And Eden was considered to be a cosmic mountain type of place because anywhere that God lived was a cosmic mountain. And so that's the logic here. This God that Abraham is dealing with is the God of creation. And the God of creation is capable of making everything out of nothing, capable of ordering space and time, capable of stooping down and making humanity out of the dust of the ground. And so certainly this God can give an old man and an old woman a child. If you've not been fully convinced yet, just look at the next time that God announces himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty. This comes from Genesis chapter 35. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you kings shall spring from you. God's not speaking to Abraham anymore. He's speaking to his grandson, Jacob. But he speaks to him using the same words that are used to command Adam and Eve in the garden. Be fruitful and multiply. This is all pointing to some really important stuff. That this God is the same God from the garden. Anyway, have I lost you? If I lost you, come on back, because this all has a point, okay? The name El Shaddai, God Almighty, or God of the Cosmic Mountain, is good news for Abraham. Because it means that he's devoted his life to following the creator God of the universe. The most powerful being that a human mind could possibly understand. A God capable of making him a father of many nations. And not only is God willing to fulfill the promise of children to this man, but is making a promise to him that his descendants will be God's people for all of eternity. And it was to this family, that God Almighty, the God of the cosmic mountain, came to dwell among humans. Jesus, born a descendant of Abraham, came to live on this earth and declared himself to be the Almighty One to anyone who had ears to hear and anyone who had eyes to recognize it. He came as a fulfillment of these words from the prophet Isaiah for us, a child has been born. A son has been given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders. And he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, most notably, if you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life or watch any kind of movie or TV show that depicts Jesus's ministry, you notice that he spends a lot of time ascending mountains. He went up the mountains to preach his good news to people, to bring a new hope to this world. The Sermon on the Mount, 
as well as the time that he spent on the mountain of transfiguration are all clues that point us to the fact that Jesus, this carpenter's son from the lowly town of Nazareth, was and is El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God of the cosmic mountain that guided the ancestor of Israel, Abraham. And the same God who created the world out of nothing. And this is the same God that we worship in this place every Sunday. This is the God that we wait expectantly for in the season of Advent. Jesus, the God who is mighty not only to save, but mighty to rearrange our world in subtle yet powerful ways. Because when Jesus came to dwell on this earth with us, this place became the cosmic mountain of God. It became the place where God and people meet. A place where we can expect the extraordinary power of God Almighty to fulfill the promise made to us that we will see and taste the fullness of the kingdom of God. In the very act of accepting and following Jesus fills your body with the Holy Spirit. It transforms your earthly flesh into God's cosmic dwelling place. And that's really weird to think about, right? That God, the God who created the universe, has created a little heavenly outpost right inside of you. But here's the thing. We're not good at remembering that. <laughs> We're quick to forget that God Almighty is truly that. We're quick to take the way of Abraham, to say, you know, I'm not sure if God can, so I think I'll take this into my own hands. I, I think that I'll be the one to fix that which has been broken. And so we place our hope in ourselves and our own power, or we place our, our hope in broken human systems, in political parties, and movements, and denominations, and corporations, and broken nations. And then we wonder, where's the kingdom that God promised? Maybe we should double down on our efforts at fighting God's fight for him. And all the while, we miss the point of living here on God's cosmic mountain. We lose hope because no matter what, we can't seem to fix our eyes on both the kingdom and the king, and we can't seem to fix our world, and we certainly can't seem to fix our own hearts. We call Jesus God Almighty, but we can't seem to get out of the way long enough to let God do all of the fighting. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is why am I carrying this burden that isn't mine? Why am I denying God the glory of doing what God does best? How will I, in this Advent season, let God be God Almighty in my life? And I know that we all carry a burden or two. This is the season that seems to particularly highlight the brokenness in our relationships to those who are meant to be closest to us. 
How can you turn that pain over to the God of hope, the one who is God Almighty, capable of, at the very least, healing your heart, if not the relationship that is causing it to break? Or maybe it's just that the holidays in general tend to highlight that which you don't have. Across our, our TV screens and, and everywhere that we consume information, we are confronted with images of financial security, of families, of friends, of communities. And so if you find yourself in that place where you're confronted by that which you do not have, I challenge you to remember and hold on to the reality that with God, you are enough wherever you are and however you are in this moment. See, God Almighty, the one who is hope, walks with us, holds us, and dwells within us. And that, friends, is the very, very good news of Advent. The very good news of Christmas. That hope is here, and hope has a name, and that name is Jesus Christ. So let's pray together. God, we believe that you are our hope, that you are the one who was and is and is to come. We believe that you are a God who can rearrange our lives, that can fix and mend our broken hearts that can transform us into something new, both as individuals and as a community. We believe that you have called us to be people of hope, that you have called this church to be a beacon of hope to a world that is hurting. And so, God, we, we turn towards you this season, and we pray that you will captivate our gaze that you won't allow us to turn back and to look and stare into the darkness of despair, but that our eyes would be eternally fixed on the light and the hope that's found in you, the hope that you promised that the kingdom is coming, the hope that you have commanded us and empowered us to embody as a community as people who testify and display the truth of your kingdom. And so God, we just pray that you would continue to mold us into the people and the community that you've called us to be. That you would go before us and that you would go with us as we seek to make your name known, to transform lives, to make disciples throughout this world, in this season and all the seasons to come. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.